we are continuing in our series on the parables. Uh, we're looking at the parable of the lost sheep from Luke 15, 1 through 7. That's on the passage behind me. But while you're maybe turning there or it's being pulled up, uh, we're really going to be tackling tonight the issue of acceptance. Right? That's really what we're talking about. As, as Luke records it, Jesus is going to tell us about essentially two kinds of false acceptance and then a true acceptance and then kind of how we get that true acceptance. How do, how do we find it and how do we get it? The reason we're talking about this is because truthfully, right, this is something we all long for. Something we all long for. It's why many of us join teams or organizations. Maybe you tried a sport like swimming once or audition for a band and you felt welcomed. You felt like you belonged there. You had fun and you kept going to practices, kept belonging to the team. Maybe you rushed a fraternity or sorority to be surrounded by brothers and sisters who would accept you, encourage you, uh, push you to new heights, right? Um, maybe even you seek acceptance from your parents, right? That you, if you get the right grades or a teacher or some other mentor, professor, a boss even that you want to perform for at your job, right? You pad the resume, get the good grades, uh, pick up the broom and sweep a little extra if it means that that person accepts you and tells you that you've done a good job, right? That feels good to us as human beings, right? We crave, we crave this acceptance. The truth is, uh, you know, some people in this room, I'm sure you're thinking to yourself, yeah, it'd be nice to be accepted for once, right? Knowing our stories, knowing uh, many people in this room, like, you know, a lot of times we end up feeling in life like we're on the outside looking in. So maybe all these other things like, yeah, it would have been nice to have been a part of a team. Right? If you're here tonight and that's your story, here's what I want. Cards on the table. I hope that RUF, at the very least, is a community where that happens. Right? I hope this is a place where you feel like you belong and you are accepted as you are as you come in the door. That no matter how you came here tonight, whether you've felt isolated on this campus the whole time. Welcome. Uh, whether you've come uh, isolated on this campus the whole time you've been here or you've felt super welcome and super belonged, um, belonged, we're going to go with it, uh, right? We want you here. We love you here in RUF and we want you to feel like you belong in our space, even if you don't belong somewhere else on campus. Uh, in fact, we hope you belong even before you believe. We all want acceptance, right? And the Bible itself, here's the thing. The Bible is no stranger to this. Right, from its earliest chapters, it claims that we are created, actually, to crave connection and belonging to one another. In Genesis 2, God looks upon his creation and pronounces it that it is not good until the first human relationship, until there is belonging between two people, acceptance. So this evening, we're asking the question, right, how do we find that acceptance, right? Should I be looking for it in my friend? Should I be looking for it with a professor? Like, how do, I, how do I meet that deep need that I have to be accepted? That's our big question this evening. We'll be asking through our passage. If you're a, you know, a note taker, this is, that's the, kind of the big, the big one to camp out at. How do we find acceptance and belonging? All right, uh, let's read the passage. Uh, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. 
Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Uh, Let's pray. Oh Lord, uh, our God, we simply pray that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, let's dive in our passage as we seek to answer the question, how do we find acceptance? Right? Look at me at verses 1 and 2. Look at me at verses 1 and 2. It is printed on the bulletin, right? The right passage? Okay, good. All right. Uh, right from the jump, Luke introduces us to two groups of people. One, the sinners and tax collectors, and the other, the Pharisees and the scribes. If these two groups sound familiar, uh, it's because they are. <laughs> they are real-life versions of the two characters that we spoke about in our parable last week. But there's a subtle change in the scenario this week, you'll notice, this parable. This week, Luke has us introduced to two groups, not individuals. These are communities into which one can belong. And the parable that follows, as Jesus sums up in verse 7, actually, all people belong to one of these two groups. You are either with the tax collectors, symbolized by the one lost sheep, or with the Pharisees, symbolized by the righteous 99 sheep that do not stray. But what does it look like to belong? What does it look like to belong to one of these groups? Let's start by looking at the Pharisees and the scribes. How do they get belonging? How do they get acceptance? If you were with us last week, you remember that the Pharisees were well known in all the ancient world, actually, as being zealous for God's law and generally regarded as pretty good moral people. Maybe that's why the one detail that Luke provides about these Pharisees and scribes, which prompts this whole story that Jesus tells, is that these men were grumblers. We hear that they're grumblers. This grumbling is the great identifier of the self-righteous. What are they grumbling about? Look at me again at verse 2. Look at verse 2. They complain, this man receives sinners and eats with them. It's difficult for the, for the Pharisees and the scribes to comprehend how Jesus could receive tax collectors and sinners at his table, like they're friends. Right? To put a finer point on it, in terms of acceptance, these men are threatened by Jesus' radical inclusion of these sinners and tax collectors, right? He includes them. He brings them in. Why? Why does it, why does it unnerve them? Why are they grumbling about it? Because it tears at the very nature of how they belong to their own group. Think about it for a second. These Pharisees, these scribes, they find their identity in their moral performance, right? And each man finds his worthiness in that group by falsely inflating his own superiority against the others, right? They've earned their place among the elite. They deserve the prestige that they enjoy, the privileges they enjoy, the pats on the back that they receive, right? But as Jesus points out in the course of this parable, Here's the thing. They may have the approval of each other. They may have the acceptance of each other, but they are not prized by the shepherd, right? They aren't sought after. They don't get a party. They have only one another. They get what they want, which is one another, but not God, not Jesus, not the shepherd. God is not impressed. This brings us to our first answer of, the more, uh, of this evening to our question, how do we find acceptance? Well, we can wrongly find it in our goodness, right? In our moral superiority, Here's the problem with this. The search for an inner ring, right? It's always a game of comparison. All self-righteousness, it's it's born of comparison. This is why the Pharisees and scribes grumble by Jesus lifting up those who are below them on the social hierarchy. They have no standard by which they can compare, compare themselves anymore, right? The eliteness of their group, if Jesus is lifting them up, what makes them special? 
What makes them distinct? How are they better than anyone else? C.S. Lewis in his essay, The Inner Ring, brilliantly describes the allure of like the room where it happens. You obviously see Hamilton. It's like the room where it happens. Being in the elite group. Here's the allure, Here, here's the allure, here's the allure of that. Lewis argues that it's not even inclusion into that inner ring that we want, but it's actually to exclude other people from it. He writes, your genuine inner ring, right? The room where it happens, it exists for exclusion. There'd be no fun if there were no outsiders. The invisible line would have no meaning unless most people were on the wrong side of it. Exclusion is no accident. It is the essence. Right? In other words, like the Pharisees, when we base our acceptance on our resumes and seek out belonging in our groups of the right people, the good people, or even just the people who believe the right things, right, we do so with an aim in our own hearts to exclude other people. Now, uh, we've got to ask ourselves a question because we're all here on a you know, Wednesday night reading the Bible. Is this us? Right? Is this you in this room right now? Right? Do you come here to RUF because this is what good people do? Are you here tonight because you're not like those people out there? You know, the people who are, who are partying or whatever you think, whatever you think makes you better than those people. Is that why you're here tonight? Because if it is, right, this is, you know, uh, th- this is the action of the Pharisees, the action of the righteous 99, and you cannot have the approval of Jesus by being, you can't have his acceptance if you only accept one another, Right? Uh, we in here, right, we might say we found the truth. You might even say, no, 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 Nick, you got it all wrong. You got it all wrong. I'm not, I don't think I'm better than the people. I, we all in this room, we know that we're sinners who need grace, right? Unlike, you know, those people out there, this is what RUF is. We're the, we're the people who need grace. It's like, again, right, you hear yourself like lifting, this is the catch 22 of the Christian life a little bit, right? As soon as we start to think like, oh, I get it. <laughs> Right? Oh, man, I'm so glad that I'm not like the other people who don't. I'm a sinner unlike them. They don't think they're the... Like you, you can keep pushing people down. Even in your unrighteousness, we can sometimes push other people down. Right? You might be hum- like so humble. Like, oh, I'm so glad I'm so humble unlike these other people. Right? Even correct theology can turn us into a group of holier-than-thou elitists. And we should repent of this. Right? If this is our group, then this is not the group that Jesus goes after and throws a party. He'll have nothing to do with us. Now, maybe you've been sitting here like the whole time and you've been thinking to yourself, yeah, this is, this is exactly why I don't go to church and why I don't do the Christian stuff because like that's exactly right. That's exactly how every Christian is. Moralistic killjoys, right? Just like holier than thou. Uh, I can't stand it, right? Is there someone maybe even in this very room that you think this about, right? Don't point at them. Don't point. Uh, saw some people moving the hand. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, you know, maybe talk to them after. Um, also, you know, maybe you're not better than them. Anyways, okay, so as I mentioned earlier, right, Luke also describes a second group of people. He describes a second group of people whom you might <laughs> identify with more regu- readily. Let's see if we can do this. There it is. But you might identify with more regularly the tax collectors and sinners, Right? Maybe you're like, you know, yeah, I don't want to be with the Christians. That makes so, so much sense. They're all lame, uh, and they all think they're awesome, and they're not. To these people, right, those outside the religious moral group of their day, the Pharisees' self-righteousness, it smacks of hypocrisy, right? You can see through it. 
It smacks of power hoarding. For the outsiders, religion typically is just an excuse for a bunch of people to wield power and make other people feel bad about themselves. Right? If that's been your experience, I want to tell you that I'm sorry. And I want you to know that Jesus is actually sees that too, and he's against it as well. Makes sense then, right? If that's how you feel, makes sense how Luke describes the tax collectors and sinners. Unlike the grumbling of the, tax, of, the, of the Pharisees and scribes, right? The tax collectors and sinners, look at me at verse one. He says that they are drawing near to Jesus. Verse one. While the scribes and Pharisees are grumbling, the tax collectors and sinners are drawing near to Jesus. Now, here's the thing. Before we look at what that means, I want to tackle that in a second, that they're drawing near to Jesus. I want to make a note about what verse one does not say. What it does not say. Note that it does not say that they are drawing near to one another, right? The tax collectors and sinners are not coming together to accept each other. There is a sense in which this kind of acceptance can also happen. It's not necessarily the point of this parable, but I want to note it. Just like the Pharisees and the scribes, there there are plenty of communities that center themselves, maybe not around how much better they are than other people, but actually around what the Bible would, would call sin, what Jesus would call sin, In fact, these communities often become necessary, right? To ignore the conviction that we have in our own hearts that what we're doing isn't right. We actually seek out people who will tell us that it's not that bad, right? You, uh, every person knows like which friend they can go and like complain about the other friend to, right? Uh, Newsflash, your other friend is also complaining to that friend about you and they're like all gossiping behind your back. But, you know, we all know, right? We all know who we can go to who's just gonna like be like, yeah, that person's the worst. You know, they're just gonna like jump in with whatever bad thing you're doing, whatever bad thing you're saying, right? While the self-righteousness, you know, or while the self-righteous inflate their own righteousness at the cost of others, right? This kind of community, it minimizes their own sinfulness at the cost of others, Right? You can either maximize your own righteousness at the cost of others, but you can also minimize your own sinfulness at the cost of others. Right? Where someone will just be a yes man. You find that friend that'll just tell you you can't do anything wrong. They'll support you no matter what, even if it's actually not good for you. And while this passage doesn't explicitly mention this kind of acceptance, because Jesus is so much better, no one's thinking about that. The Bible is not silent about its temptation. Uh, this acceptance is found... Uh, you know, it happened in the life of God's people. We read about it earlier. In the 7th century BC, John read about how God's people had strayed from the truth. They were deeply committed to worshiping other gods, centering their lives around their own quests for money and power and sex and greed. And in Jeremiah 6, which John read, the prophet describes the leaders of God's people at the time. And he says this, they have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace when there is no peace. Like clockwork, right? There were false prophets who were more than happy to tell Israel, you know, oh, it's fine. God doesn't really care what you do. He likes, he loves you. God's so accepting. He loves everybody no matter what they do. And so it doesn't really matter. He's not gonna, he doesn't care if you sin, right? Except God does care and it makes him angry because he doesn't want you to hurt other people, right? And he gets to define what hurts, they were happy, you know, these, these uh, false prophets were happy to deaden the sense of guilt that people had over their sin and to celebrate what was evil. And you know what? People love them for it, right? We love, we love a good stand, right? Like where that word come from? It's like, I love a good stand. Somebody who's just going to like hype you up, right? But the thing is when it's hyping up at the cost of other people, right? It, it's actually just hurting. It's not being a good friend. 
This is our second answer to the question, how do we find acceptance? We can wrongly find it in our sin, right? We can wrongly find it in our sin. You can find it in your goodness, but you can also find it in your badness. Uh, the same thing happens today. Uh, you know, I don't know. It, it's fashionable. You guys probably have this uh, here. I haven't lived in Kentucky in a while, but uh, at the end of like a lot of alcohol ads, there'll be this thing that says uh, like drink responsibly at the end, right? You've seen this before. Yes, nod. Yes, okay. Um, okay, so uh, in Wisconsin, there's this phrase called drink Wisconsinably, uh, where I'm coming from most recently. And I, there's like a bar with the name on it. And like, there's all these t-shirts that say like drink Wisconsinably. And um, I thought it was just like a fun way to be like, yeah, you know, in Wisconsin, like we drink, but we're like drink responsibly. So you could even call it Wisconsinably. And then one time, a few of my students at my last school were, uh, were going out for the weekend. And one of them was turning 21. I said, drink Wisconsinably. And they like looked at me for a second and like kind of paused and they were like, okay. And then the sweet girl who's a junior at the time like comes over and she like whispers to me. She's like, I don't think you know what that means. And I was like, I don't think so either. Uh, and she goes, she tells me that like drink Wisconsinably is a joke about how we actually all drink to excess. And as long as we all, like, as long as we're all doing it, then like who really cares? Right. Like it, it deadens the idea of like what it's actually supposed to be for. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, the, the point there being, right, that the biblical story about alcohol is that it's a gift to be shepherded and enjoyed by God, right? It's given by him. Think of, you know, Psalm 104, right? Wine is given to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, bread to strengthen man's heart. Spoken of in a good way, but not to deaden someone's reality, right? This is a biblical picture of feasting to gladden and strengthen the heart, to, to enhance life, not diminish it. Right? Not to dull it with binge drinking and poor decision making. Right? But if we all do it, then maybe none of us has to feel bad. <laughs> right? This is the idea. This is the mentality. If we all accept it, then it's not bad. And, and this would be a mistake to misread Jesus as saying that that's how acceptance comes, through immorality and sin. This is why Jesus describes such people as lone sheep who have lost their way. Right? Look with me at verse 5. Jesus doesn't like praise all the tax collectors for being tax collectors. He says, Jesus of, uh, says of all sinners, of all varieties, whether it's sexual or substance abuse or lying or greed or pride or envy or gossip, they're all like sheep who have gone so far away from their shepherd that even if the shepherd were to find them, he would have to pick them up and carry them on his shoulders because they couldn't walk back. That's how far away you are in your sin, right? It's not something to be taken lightly. It's not something that God doesn't care about. Just because Jesus is receiving these, these people doesn't mean that he doesn't care about their lostness. In fact, that's the whole point of the parable, how much he cares. A friend who tells you, right, uh, as I said earlier, a friend who tells you like, oh, it's okay, you're just like venting. You can, just, you can confide in me to like excuse your gossip. Like that's not a friend. That person doesn't care about you, right? They actually don't care about how lost you are and they're happy to push you further and further away. Whether it's endorsing right, alcohol abuse or a sexual lifestyle or a political position, if it's contrary to God's ethics, Jesus in this parable calls it what it is and it's lostness and sin, right? You can be good, you can be bad, both of them are lost, but Jesus doesn't leave us lost, does he? Look at me at verse four. Look at me at verse four. Jesus asks a rhetorical question. What man, having lost a sheep, wouldn't seek after it until he found it? 
This is the hope for all of humanity, that God does not leave us to our lostness and our brokenness. Despite the lack of business sense, it is to leave 99 sheep and go look for one, right? This is the God who has come to us in Jesus. Guys, he searches high and low on every mountaintop and every valley. And he'll walk miles and miles with no end in sight to find that lost sheep. However far you think you can wander, he can walk farther. Right? However much you think he couldn't love you, man, he loves you more. He's, he's not lost a sheep yet. He's a good shepherd and he is seeking you here this evening in his word, telling you this parable right now. Whether you've been a Christian for years or never before, this is for you. This is the solution to the sin that you think alienates you from God, alienates you from everyone else. Nick, if you knew what I did, you wouldn't, you wouldn't say that the shepherd wants me. Of course I would, right? That's what makes you lost, right? And that's what he wants to do. He wants to go find you. And the thing is, the solution isn't to try harder to do good. It's not to pick yourself up by your bootstraps and try harder and do better. Right? It, it, it's not, you know, the solution isn't to belong to the good people and look down on everyone else to excuse that sin. Look to the cross. Look to your shepherd who has died to bring you home. Right? He would stop at nothing, even his own life, to get you back to the fold. That's your acceptance. Right? If you'll but let Jesus rejoice over you, invite you to a party where the whole of heaven is rejoicing over you. That's what he wants to do while you are lost, <laughs> right? Not until you, not when he hopes you clean yourself up and you come back. And once you come back, he'll accept you. No, while you are lost, he is looking for you. All you have to do is stop. Stop running from him. Can you imagine Christ's face smiling at you and welcoming you home, carrying you back? This is our final and lasting answer for the evening's question. How do we find acceptance? We find it in the joy of our shepherd, Jesus. Right. Um, whenever I was a sophomore in college, I worked at a boys camp in Black Mountain, North Carolina called Camp Timberlake for Boys. While I was there, uh, my camp boss got wind that I was a runner, that I like to run. Uh, if you don't know, I've like injured my back running recently. And like um, it's been painful for me not to be able to like just get on a treadmill and run a few miles every day. I really love it's like my time like zone out and stuff. <laughs> Well, uh, he said, you know, there's pretty good trails out here. I'm like, I have heard, you know, I'm from like living in Western Kentucky, right? We don't even have like, you know, the gorge. There are no mountains. Like I was like, this is going to be so exciting. I'm going to go trail running. And there's been all this beautiful stuff. Of course, that was true. He gave me one word of advice before I hit the trail, though. He was going to pick me back up in, in a couple hours. He said, put me on Rainbow Trail, this trail. And he says, you know, to make a big loop, but make sure when you get to the fork, right, you take the right fork. Don't get ahead of me. Don't get ahead of you. You're like, you took the left fork. Yeah, I took the left fork. Okay, I took the left fork. Right, I get to the, and it wasn't a fork. It was like a double back. Like one goes this way and then one like went back and around. That doesn't look like a fork. Anyways, so I'm, I'm running and, you know, a couple hours go by and I was like, I really should be back. He said that it would only take like an hour to run. And I keep running and I keep thinking like, I, I must be getting closer. It must be getting closer. And I don't know if you know much about uh, North Carolina geography, but Mount Mitchell is the highest point uh, in the Appalachians. And Mount Mitchell is about 50 miles away from uh, Black Mountain where I started. And then I see this sign as I'm running, like Mount Mitchell, 10 miles. And I'm like, I am in the wrong direction <laughs> by a long ways, right? 
And so, uh, but I keep thinking like, okay, well, I'll try and walk back. And, but I'm afraid that I'm not going the right direction. And my, uh, my cell phone is losing juice all this time, right? Cause it's searching for a signal. And I get down to about 2% and I realize like, I'm going to have to call and be like, I'm lost, you know? Uh, because what if they can't find me in time? They don't know if I'm still alive or anything. And they can at least like, I can tell them what sign I had seen and all this stuff. So I call him and, uh, of course, like, you know, he like comes and like meets me on the trail and like leads me back out. I was like, I told you to go to the right on the fork. I was like, that's not a fork. <laughs> anyway, right. Now, the point that I, the reason I tell that story is this, that until I was willing to call, the truth is I was going to stay lost. Right. But the only difference between me being found and me being lost was not me like doing enough running more. If I had persisted in running, I would only have gotten farther and farther away from where I needed to be. Right. Instead, actually, the only thing I needed to do was to stop running away. (laughs) Right. To turn around to admit that I was lost. Friends, this is the same truth that Jesus is telling in this parable. You don't have to clean yourself up. It's not, it's not up to you to be good enough for Jesus. He's not asking you to be better. What he's asking you is to come home, to let him come and get you while you are lost and carry you back with him. So you don't have to be away from him. He loves you. He wants you. And he died to make that happen, right? You couldn't have earned it. You can't come back on your own. You can't say like, oh, I know I sinned, but that's okay, right? Somebody should pay for that. You should pay for hurting other people. And yet God doesn't hold that to you. Instead, he puts it on himself and carries you home. Friends, I would take that deal tonight and every day. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for uh, this parable. I thank you for your goodness.